All right, the time has hit 7.30, and some of you seem to be talking to each other, so I figured I don't want to interrupt if you're talking to God, but we'll, we'll dive in. But I hope we can enjoy, continue uh, enjoying the time of prayer as we dive into these um, specific requests. And one of the things I want to encourage you when you're in the groups is uh, as you're gathering a card for a missionary, try to maybe, if you're the one selecting, if, if you prayed for the McConklins last week, maybe try to grab a different missionary to give you some breath over, over all the missionaries we're working with. And as we get new letters, we will put those out here. And what I'm going to start doing is putting them in enough of a volume that you can just keep the letter. And so I want to encourage you to grab the letters from our missionaries. Um, more and more of them want to do email. And so we're just saying that's fine. We'll print the email off and bring it here. Uh, but those are fine to take with you. So if you, you see the letter, you want to follow up on a missionary. If you have questions, and this is what, um, if you're like, hey, I'd like to know more, not just don't ask questions. You know how sometimes people are like, do you have any questions? And you're in a class with kids, and they're like, well, if you want us to raise our hand, we will. I'm not looking for those kind of questions. But if you're looking at a missionary and you're like, huh, I wonder about this, or I have a question about that, I would love for you to sketch it down. We'll reach out to the missionary to try to get our answers, because we really want our, us to know uh, each of our missionaries. I've mentioned this, I know, but in that same vein, um, in the end of March, Ed, Cody and I will be traveling to India. And the purpose is Cody's traveling along with me to see the work there, uh, but we're already specifically trying to understand how we can better help uh, Dr. Joseph and the ministry there. And so we'll be uh, doing two conferences with pastors, uh, one in Bangalore, one in Wynard. Uh, we'll be preaching, I'll be preaching graduation. Uh, Cody's going to be sharing his testimony, uh, connecting with these pastors one-on-one. Our goal is to understand what it means to minister in India so that as a church, we can come back and talk to you about, hey, this is what we saw. And that's one of the reasons I was encouraged, uh, encouraged to have Cody go along, but asked him to join me. Uh, if I'm on a mission trip and you say, hey, Kenny, I'd like to go along, uh, that's not something you have to be shy about mentioning to me. So we can accommodate that. I love to travel with you when we're seeing these places. Our goal is to see our church on the foreign mission field uh, themselves, every family unit represented. But also as we go around as a church and look at these ministries, we want the, the multiplicity of eyes and leadership looking and being able to come back and connect our church to the, those works. And so uh, at these trips that come up and, and you want to join in, just let me know and we'll work to accommodate that to go along uh, we love that. Uh, my hope and prayer is that at some point, uh, maybe it's not me going to India, but maybe Cody's going with someone else with you guys and going to minister there or, or however it's melded together. If Pastor Theron's uh, handling camps in Nicaragua, maybe you want to join him. Maybe you'd like to help out. Maybe you want to just be a, a, an, an extra set of hands or take picture or video and, and understand that field. Uh, please reach out to us. We, we are Excited about that. Be praying in 2024, January of 24, we plan on going to Nicaragua as a church to do a medical mission work on the island of Ometepe uh, with one of our church planners that's there and also at another church in Navarrete uh, where Pastor Ange, uh, Angelo is and he runs our camps. We'll be doing two. So as you look forward to 2024, there'll be a trip there. Uh, Thayer and I are working hard. We're hoping that uh, our teens in the summer of 2024 will be able to take a mission trip. Uh, instead of going to camp, they'll go on the mission field. And so we are trying now that COVID has ended. Well, it seems it's changed. How about that? Um, and it seems easier to travel uh, that we'll be able to get out there. But we want to see our church on the mission field and involved in a very uh, real way uh, um, with the missionaries. And, and we want you to connect with them, ask questions because we support them as a church and and we want to be vested. So I think the prayer is is a primary and a priority for us as a church to be diving into. But from there, uh, we'll be able to go uh, and be in those works in those areas. And you can start seeing how we're crossing the globe. Uh, we try to find people and missionaries and, and mission work that we can partner with, be involved with, get very deeply Im involved. Uh, ben Muldoon, we were able to this last year, uh, because we had a missionary come off the field, we were able to double his support, which really helped him get launched. He, had he talked to Theron about how amazingly encouraging it was and it came in with a, just a wave of support and january 17th they flew to romania and so uh, he's wanted us to come there to romania uh, jared has invited us to england and so we have so many opportunities to connect and uh, they're seeking that the the whole church that are coming together to help and so i'm excited about that keep that in your mind pray about that 
uh, pray specifically in 2024 about going with us uh, down there. I say this not because it's convenient, because it's never convenient, but you want to take your family on our church mission trip, you're welcome to do that. Uh, I took all five of my kids, and yes, Clayton played with snapping turtles and scared the death out of that one pastor that was there in Guatemala. I had no idea. I don't know what a snapping turtle. Hey, what, why do you have snapping turtles at the church? I don't know why you do this, but he got with everything. So uh, never is it convenient that the kids get sick, but they remember, and we want our kids to see the mission field, to be burdened for that, uh, whether they're called to be a missionary, and our church has the honor of sending them out, or whether they get a chance to be burdened in that way and they're going to be intricately involved in sending and praying. We want to build that fire in them. And so uh, you have kids and you want to find a way to do that, please uh, let me know. Uh, but that is something we want to do. And I can bear testimony to uh, the fact that you work with your kids and experiencing that with them and seeing them minister. Them seeing our church minister changes their disposition. They're not told to be involved in missions. They watch it and they watch this, uh, the giftedness of our church. That's what I think is amazing. You might think, Kenny, I'm not medical. Neither am I. Um, I can speak Spanish a little bit, and so I can translate. I'm decent at logistics, and so we can move it around, and it took a lot of logistics and math. Um, pharmacy, Mr. Westergaard, you can attest to the fact when you're, you're handing out the right medicine and there's nothing English on there, but we figured it out, and, but they took care of it, and we use all in-country uh, medicine. So we, everyone was put to use. It was a wonderful time, and I'm excited about it. Uh, everyone getting to go again, the more the merrier. Maybe we'll have to, you know, we won't have Wednesday night because everyone's there. How about that? That'd be amazing. So uh, be praying about that, thinking about it. Uh, we're in Leviticus, and, and as you well know, because you see the whole uh, graph up here, and in all honesty, they put 16 and 17, Day of Atonement. It's all linked together, and I was just talking, Mrs. Ruth here, this is, or Mr. Thermogene, Ruth is to talk that. I'm slow. Tonight, I'm, I'm, I'm not firing all cylinders. But talking to Thermogene about the fact that they put it together. But when you read 17, it's not just linked as a, as a, as a sub point off of the Day of Atonement. It really stands alone. It doesn't tie into 18 and 20 in the sense of being with moral purity. I understand why people group it with the Day of Atonement. Actually, most commentators don't group it with the Day of Atonement. They group it with, with like a subpar of moral purity off the, off the side. But in all honesty, if I was drawing the graph, and I know it's really pretty the way they did it, 17 stands alone because it emphasizes something that's critical. And I, I titled it with a very long, boring title, Serious Thoughts on Sacrifice and Blood, because that's what it boils down to. And the topic comes to something that Leviticus has addressed over and over again. And it's this idea of worship and worshiping God, how God dictates. And 17 does something really neat. And if, if you're reading through it, and I encourage you, if you haven't had a chance to read through it, it's short. So you go home and read through it. I'll emphasize it. The how many times God said he's going to cut somebody off. We do not serve a vindictive God. Uh, as we've talked about, these laws are not coming from a dictator, as the world would like to see it, but instead are expressions of a gracious and merciful God. And so as you look at that, when a gracious and merciful God leans into something in that way, when, when he emphasizes it that emphatically, I'm going to cut I will cut them off. They will be cut off. They will bear their iniquity. And you recognize that, that he is emphasizing for us the importance of it. Uh, if you read the history of Israel, and if you've read through the whole Old Testament, you've read the history of Israel. One thing I notice for them, and I've been working through the book of Judges, and it's a fascinating read because you watch these judges from different tribes pop up and serve in different ways. And as you progress through the book, you see a deterioration in the morality of the judges. By the time you end the book, you end with a story that Thayer and I were talking about. I'm like, I'm going to have to preach that on a Sunday morning. And he says, should we do children's church that Sunday? And I'm like, no, but maybe we should, you know, because the story is so confrontational to what we know God would be pleased with. But you watch this deterioration. But what you see in Israel's history, and it replicates what humanity does, they perpetually struggle with adopting worldly worship. Uh, they were, as sadly we are as well, drawn to what the world does and how the world indulges itself, 
how they express themselves in worship, worship that ends up being about them. And if you break down, uh, when I say anything but true faith in the one true God, as you break that down, you watch the selfishness that's intrinsically embedded in every religion. You say, well, Kenny, what about Muslims? They serve Allah to the death. For what purpose? Paradise. And a paradise that involves some other poor individuals being oppressed by this new found hero because their religion is awfully oppressive to females and there is all this benefit to this martyr, but he ends up in this wicked, immoral paradise. It's about him. If you look at Hinduism, and if you go to India, and I was talking to Theron, when I'm in India, I'm hoping to connect with Bethany's cousin, if it's possible, working with the deaf in Calcutta. And we're hoping maybe to have a chance to bump into him and, and see where his ministry is going, translating the Bible for deaf people so they can understand Scripture. Because in India, when you are deaf and you believe in reincarnation, if you come back as a deaf person, what does that mean about your former life? You're somehow, yeah, you were somehow wicked, so your deafness is a what? Punishment. Do you care about reaching these people? No. So you see how ugly, it, oh, it's so inclusive. Our world. Look how inclusive this is. They worship every god under the sun. Yeah, but they take their, the, those who are struggling with, with, with a handicap and blame it on them and blame it on a former life and talk about a desperate situation, talk about people who are actually in, in, a, in a unique way, primed to hear the truth about Jesus Christ. And so I'm excited about possibly connecting with him. I'm excited about the Muldoons working with, the, with a group of people that are ostracized. But you see how ugly other faith is because it's a lie. It's about worshiping mankind, giving them expression. I put here, if you read in the Old Testament, they engage in crass immorality. Let's be honest. Our world is equally as crass as the pagan religion we see in the Old Testament. All you have to do is read the real story of what they do to children in public schools and how they're promoting this whole uh, gender dysphoria, ridiculous, wicked, immoral system. We are crassly immoral in our humanism, which is a religion, um, or some other twist of the mind. Uh, we're not surprised by where the world goes because the world is wicked. Now, God, knowing that his glory is what's best for humanity, and that's a, that's a statement, that's a reality of Scripture that the world struggles with. But the best thing for me is to glorify God, correct? As believers, we know that. But we almost feel apologetic when the world says, well, your God demands all the glory. Our God demands all the glory because he's the true God and we were designed to do this. So I am functioning how I was designed. I have, um, I have five kids, as many of you are aware, and my youngest is six. And at lunchtime, Heather said to me after I dialogue with Clayton, she says, you do remember he's six, right? Because he does everything at mock speed and volume. Um, everything's loud, everything's bombastic, everything. He came in very excited because as a six-year-old boy in his sock feet, he had stepped in poo. And I said to him, that's not something to be excited about. And Heather said, he's six. What six-year-old boy isn't excited about this? Did he leave wearing shoes? He left in his bare feet. To which I asked, what happens when you step in the same pile that you're definitely going to be magnetized to with your bare feet? Should I cut off your feet? You know, joking. I would not do that, you know. And he thinks that's hilarious. And Heather said, good job. Now you've sent him off to find whatever pile may be in the yard. And with three dogs and four cats, trust me, the one thing you can find in my yard in winter is, is that. Okay. When we mow, we fertilize. In the wintertime, we're just storing up for the season of spring. And uh, I don't walk in my yard. I drive my truck to the barn if I want to pit around the shop, and I drive it back. But either way, the, and, and 
we have a new puppy and, and another dog that's digging holes. And I went out in the yard and they've moved all the firewood into their fort by the playground. And there's a new hole being dug. And I said, did the dogs dig that? And Trent's like, no, that's my hole. I'm like, great. This is <laughs> my yard is five acres of a death trap. If you can cross it without breaking your ankle, you win. You can keep it. You know, uh, either way, I digressed. I don't know what I was talking about now. Either way, we'll move on. <laughs> oh, God's glory is the best for humanity, right? He knows what is best for his people. And here's what I think we need to remember as we read Leviticus. He has called Israel to something completely different. And it is a faith that is centered on the true God, worshiping him as he directed. We, as we read Leviticus, and, and we've talked about I think through the sacrificial system, we've understood the depth of Christ's sacrifice. We understand the trespass, which is a payment offering. We understand purification offering as cleansing. And then when we read Isaiah and we talk about what Christ, the Messiah, is going to come do, and he's going to pay for our sins, he's going to make us white as snow. And then you see the burnt offering, which is dedication. We understand the depth of our worship. But one of the things we also need to gather from Leviticus is that God makes no apologies for telling us how to worship him, to direct our worship for his glory. And the Israelites, as they're reading the laws or receiving it, they understand this. Faith is centered on the one true God, worshiped as he directed. So chapter 16 walked us through the Day of Atonement, which was a crucial day on the Jewish calendar, uh, some commentators say it was the most important day on the Jewish calendar. Uh, certainly uh, couldn't be listed even outside of the top three. This, this is a critical day. Just a little bit of a review, and I just want us to throw some things out that we remember. What were some of the key components that we saw during the Day of Atonement? Does the scapegoat? What else do we see? A lot of self-examination. Purification. What else did we see? Aaron's garments change. We see a perspective about who you are. What else did we see? Where did he go? Yeah. Into where, though? His holy place. And then what did he do in the Holy of Holies? Blood. How many times? Seven times. How many times did he do that? Two times, right? So he goes in, and then he's going to come out, and then he's going to do it for the people, sprinkling blood. And so we see sacrifice, right? We have bull, we have ram, we have two goats, we have another ram. We see an emphasis on blood, the sprinkling of the blood. Remember, blood was the purification. And what we're going to see in 17 is as we move from 16 to 17, as we dialogue about worship, it is going to zero in on the blood. It's going to zero in on where do you slaughter an animal. And you're going to find out that as Israel moved around the wilderness, you only killed an animal. We talked about this in the sacrifice at the tabernacle. You want mutton? You have a peace offering and then you eat. You do not slaughter yourself any domesticated animal that would be used for sacrifice. It went to the tabernacle. A bit of a broader look uh, into the sacrifice as a whole uh, how would you rate the exactness of the details you see in chapter 16? One to ten. And here's how I do it. One is the detail you would get from a preschool coloring project when they have 250 crayons. Ten is the blueprints for building a bridge. How would you rate the details of chapter 16? Ten, right? Most people, I left room for people to say nine or eight, but it's just, I said, though we may give different ratings, which no one does, no one thinks this is a coloring page for preschoolers, Right? It is very specific and very detailed. The reason I mention it is uh, if you give a preschooler a coloring page, you're happy if they don't color on the table and on themselves. You don't care what color they use just so they're happy and they're scribbling with colors on a page. As they get older, uh, by the time they're a teenager, you hope they can color between the lines and maybe select colors that make sense. But the idea is it's not important, right? Structurally, it doesn't hold up anything. It goes on your fridge, whether you use green, whether you use brown, whether they color the whole thing in one color because that's their favorite color. It doesn't change. You take a bridge and you go build it and you decide to use the wrong materials and you have what? 
disaster. So when God dives in in 16 with details like you build a bridge, and I want us to connect this in our mind, when we change something, we get what? Disaster. And so now God is telling us, he showed us that he's very specific about sacrifice, what animals are used, the process followed, the approach to him. And, and we mentioned Aaron's clothes. He went from ornate vestige to plain vestige as he walked in. And then he had to get out. He had to wash himself. Then he put on his other clothes to offer the burnt offering. So there was a whole motion and an approach to God that was very detailed. Uh, and again, it's not because God is trying to be difficult or manipulative, but because it is eternally significant. And if you're in the scripture and you're reading something and sometimes this happens and it's okay when we do this and we wonder, why is this important? Why does this matter? Well, if it's in the Bible, what is an answer we know? That it does matter. Now, we might not be able to wrap our mind around that reason, but as a believer, you can ask, how does this matter? But you don't ask, how does this matter? See the difference in the question that you're asking? How, in the sense of I want to learn, and how, in the sense of I'm skeptical about it, it's in Scripture, so it's significant. It, it matters. And as we look at this, this is eternally significant. The breath of uh, the sacrifice and the various things mandated show us what it means to have atonement, right? Trespasses, paying, purification. Sorry. No, that's fine. Purification is, um, is going to cleanse its holiness. Burnt offering is dedication and more. Sacrifice was crucial to understanding where and who they were. They were lost. They were unholy. They were facing punishment. So as we looked at the Day of Atonement, we saw sacrifice again. But now the idea was purification. And remember that they were putting their sins on the scapegoat and sending the, the scapegoat out of the tent. But we oftentimes do fixate on the scapegoat, which is a portion of this and is, is important. But what you cannot miss is that he went into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled blood. There was a purification where God was going to meet with Israel and there was a clear way that he went about it. Um, so we understand the idea of being clean. And we watched again the holy or the high priest going the holy of holies, sprinkling blood for cleansing. And then we saw the importance of blood to God and therefore important to us. I want you to realize that God is not just randomly picking things out of the air for Leviticus and for the nation of Israel. Genesis 9.4 when Noah is getting off the ark, God allows him to eat meat. And 9.4, it says, But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. And I want you to realize that God is about to give or reinforce his laws on blood to the nation of Israel because the blood is precious. The blood represents life and the life of the animal. And so God is going to remind them of a statute he gave all the way back to Noah when he says, You can kill and eat animals but you will not eat the blood of that animal because it represents life. And we are, as we know from Romans, we're dead in sins. We, we, we need life. We need a replacement. We need the exchange. Leviticus is pointing to that. You go to Hebrews 9.22, and it says, Almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood is no Remission. And, a, and an Israelite would know that. Blood is always shed. The blood is always significant. The blood is always poured out. The blood is where the life is at. So tie that all back into the discussion and emphasis on the Day of Atonement. And now you understand the importance of sacrifice and blood for the nation of Israel and for us. And so all that leading up to turning to chapter 17. Here we have clear warnings about sacrifice and blood and the very heavy implications of not obeying. I'll read the first section. Uh, then whoever is willing to read number two, someone have number two, Jason. Um, who will do number three? Thermo Jean has it. And Bob, you get number four, and I think that wraps it up, so you know your numbers. If you just pop up there and turn on the mic and read it. Uh, first one goes like this, 17. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, and remember that formula, 
That is a repeated formula, and actually it's so repeated that we remember in chapter 10 when God speaks directly to Aaron that we're like, what? He's talking direct to Aaron, which is again a change and an emphasis. But through the book of Leviticus, God speaks to Moses to speak to Aaron. Speak unto Aaron and unto his sons and unto all the children of Israel and say unto them, this is the thing which the Lord hath commanded, saying, what a man soever there be of the house of Israel that killeth an ox or lamb or goat in the camp or that killeth it out of the camp and bringeth it not unto the door of the tabernacle, the congregation to offer an offering unto the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord. Blood shall be imputed unto that man. However, that's worded. Um, it means that he is counted as a murderer. Just so you know, when blood's imputed to you or you've like you've shed blood, however that's worded, it means that you are counted as a murderer. He hath shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. That's not an activity that they would do, because how would you know if someone killed and ate an animal and never told you? There was no way to show this guilt. Who knew that the man had killed an animal outside of the camp? God did. So anytime you see cut off in this secretive way, because no one else would know, it's like if you catch him, he's cut off. But if he gets away with it, he's not cut off. You don't get away with it because God cuts you off in this way. To the end that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they offer in the open field, even that they may bring them unto the Lord, unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, unto the priests, and offer them for peace offerings unto the Lord. And the priest shall sprinkle the blood upon the altar of the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and burn the fat for a sweet savor unto the Lord. And then the person would take the meat and have a feast. That's how you would consume meat. You weren't to make a sacrifice. Now, the next group of verses will articulate why that is in the sense of worship. But I want us to get the overarching point that in the wilderness, wanderings and movement, there would be no what they would call secular slaughter. There would be no butcher giving you your cut of filet mignon. You had the priest who would take care of that. You wanted to have meat for dinner from a domesticated animal, which were used in offerings. You brought it as a peace offering and followed the prescribed manner. No exception. You always offered it as a peace offering to God. The fat is burned. The blood is sprinkled for purification and you consumed it as a meat feast. Sometimes one day, sometimes two. What was left over was often given out to others, and it was a very inclusive environment, if you remember our peace offering. Now we understand that as they're encamped together, they always sacrifice to eat meat every single time. We're going to see this change in Deuteronomy, uh, and I put that, it functioned as they lived in close community. In Deuteronomy, that distance would allow them to treat domesticated animals as hunted animals. Uh, if they're far from the tabernacle, the blood guidelines are going to remain, how they drain the blood, but they were given more places to take their meat and take care of it as it spread out over the, over the promised land. They're all together now in Leviticus, and so there's no conflict. It's understanding what God is trying to teach them in the law here. You move forward. They're in close community, and God is serious about not slaughtering an animal outside of the tabernacle, so much so that the offender is seen as a murderer and will be dealt with by God directly. Now, why is that? And I just mentioned it a minute ago. How in the world do you know if someone had a mutton feast out in the wilderness if you never see him and there's no evidence? I mean, they're not like us with the bib for barbecue all in their chest walking around saying, wow, I have the meat sweats. I mean, they're... They, if someone did it, they would have hit it. So it's God who would punish them. And so unless you were someone that blatant in your disobedience, no one would know. So the punishment is rendered by God's dictate. Uh, Wenham notes this, and he quoted an eminent Israeli lawyer, which would be a scribe of this. We kind of think, okay, God is going to punish him. Have you ever seen that sticker? Only God can judge me, Right. Because we actually view God's judgment as distant. We fear man's judgment over God's judgment. So we read in Leviticus 17, oh, it's just God that's going to take you. Oh, God, God will take you. God's merciful. God's going to let him off the hook. And so this, this lawyer wrote, uh, the threat of being cut off by the hand of God in your own time, in your lifetime, hovers 
for the ancient Israelite hovers over the offender constantly and inescapably. And this is how he compares it. He says he's not unlike the patient who was told by his doctors that his disease is incurable and then he might die any day. So we have to switch our mindset from the sticker on the back of a pickup truck that says only God will judge me. And I always say, yes, he will judge you. And that's the scariest statement you can make. But we're so trite about God's judgment. We're so distant from God as a, as a society. To the ancient Israelite, they understood it like you just got the, the cancer statement. We can't do anything for you. And at some point, you're just going to keel over. Do the best you can, but I don't know when, but it's going to happen. It could happen any day. That is the, that is the sentiment of God saying, I'm going to cut them off. It's not depicted as subjective. It's not depicted as extending your time. It's actually the worst sentence you can imagine because you're just waiting for the unfolding of God's judgment. Its psychological effect had to be devastating. Understand the weight that's there. I put here, so how serious should we rate God judging by this punishment? How should we think of God's wrath and God's judgment? Where should it be on our radar? One to ten. It's ten, right? Now let's be honest with ourselves. Where do you rate it? If you're really thinking about it, and this is how you evaluate it. This is what I did in my mind. Okay, how often do I actually process God's judgment? Now, are we under God's judgment as believers? No. But see, why do we undervalue salvation? We don't un, we under we under we undervalue the fact that unholiness has to be judged. We we've lost sight of God's holiness and God's magnitude and God's wrath. God is not going to judge the unsaved world. God they're under God's wrath right now. They're not getting by and there's coming a day. And that's what I find fascinating is we see the world around us. You see people who are under God's wrath immediately right now. They have the sentence on them. But if we're serious about that, what does that do to a believer? Well, how does that change? We're left here as ambassadors. So as I look at the world and I start seeing them in the immediate wrath of God on them, does that change the urgency with which I share the only truth that matters to them? Does it sharpen our testimony to say, let's go to Peter now? What does Peter call us to do? We're saved. And he says, from your salvation, add to or supplement or, or supply uh, in an abundant way, right? As going to the choir directors, supply for the chorusers, the singers. And it says, you need to do this. Does that then change my perspective? Because that is going to to shine a bright light for his glory. Yeah, it resonates with this, right? So as we see Leviticus and move through, you, you start recognizing that understanding the seriousness of God's judgment will change how I behave because I recognize the implications of being sinful and what it means for someone to be unsaved and, and unholy and under God's wrath. So now we go into why in the world do we have so many regulations. What could a key, though not only reason, be? And that's when we dive into Leviticus 17. Why is he getting very specific about why you slaughter? And that's reading number two. Uh, Jay, you're going to have that one. That's seven through nine. So you got like three verses to knock out there. You could do it in pig Latin if you wanted to. I mean, we won't understand you, but you can try. <laughs> That's that's the right there. So you're at nine. What happened again? What happens at the end? You're going to be what? Cut off. And that's repeated. It's very fascinating. The word in Hebrew is goat and it's goat demons. And in, in, in some translations, it's going to say devil or demon or goat or goat demon. And it is the word for goat and it re replicates idol worship. And here's what I find fascinating. Why in the world when you're traveling 
through the desert. You have to bring all your sacrifice to the tabernacle. We're given a very key reason because there's now no excuse for you to be killing an animal and say, I'm not sacrificing it to an idol. I'm just killing it to eat, right? It takes that reason away. And what's the word that comes to mind so that no one can get away with that? They can't sneak around doing a sin and then try to blame it on something else. We often get together to hold each other what? Accountable. And so what you actually see is God holding the nation accountable and giving the nation an opportunity to hold each other accountable. When it goes further out from there, what happens? Well, you're able to sacrifice in different places and the blood sacrifice or the blood requirement is put in front of them. But here there's no way you can can sacrifice or pretend to sacrifice or hide the fact that you're engaging in idolatry. If the slaughter out in the field, then it was tied to pagan worship. Now think about that for a second. How do we wander off into idolatry? How do we get caught up in the world and place something before God? What takes place? Yeah. You think, why does an Israelite even, why would an Israelite go sacrifice to a demon? What, what, you just got out of it. Why would they? Yeah, this, this is following through with it. But think about this. What has God done for them? Delivered them in a miraculous way. Do you know what happens over time? They start celebrating the Passover. And what do they emphasize in the Passover? The fact that they got out. They forget who got them out. It becomes a national holiday, not a worshipful holiday. It's a celebration of what we've done as a people versus what God has done for us. And I say all that because let's just run through our mind and think how pagan we become in what we do. And we say, well, and I've heard this before. I hear it in my own mind, you know, well, don't spiritualize everything. Oh, you know what the Israelite was told? (laughs) There you go, right there. What does Leviticus teach us? You don't distance yourself from God. There's a quote at the end. I'm actually going to read it now just because it it fits. Um, eat, oh, this, oh, I'll, maybe I'll read it when I get to it because I can't find it now. <laughs> oh, no, here it is. Throughout history, God's people have tended to forget that they owe exclusive allegiance to God. I find that fascinating because these rules are to remind Israel that they owe exclusive allegiance to God and one thing that I would say the church as a whole grates under is the idea that they owe exclusive allegiance to God. Because if God cuts into my hobby or cuts into my time or cuts into my finances or cuts into my job or cuts into whatever I want to do, I will push back against God and say, well, God, give me some space. Don't, don't take everything. And the nation of Israel, and, I, and this is what I find fascinating about uh, especially when you read through the Old Testament, God does not apologize for exclusive allegiance. He deserves it and he demands it. He's a jealous God, right? He is, and here's what's fascinating, and the world grabs that and tries to think of God incorrectly. I I don't teach a Sunday school class, but Theron was talking about the lesson, the attributes of God. And as you dive in, he was touching with his class on this topic. God has told us who he is, and that means he's told us how we are to think about him. It is absolute rebellion and atrocity when the world thinks of God differently than what he said. And we typically say, well, God can handle it. He's God. God will punish him for it. It's, It's actually exponentially more serious than we give it credit for. And so as you look at this, we understand that no slaughter takes place outside of the tabernacle, period. What's the point? It's accountability. No one can say, I'm just eating it. I don't worship goat gods. If you're slaughtering a domesticated animal, it implied idolatry. And then think about this for a second. When we worship God, in the way he has not prescribed, how does God view it? He killed two sons because ultimately it's not just us making a slight mistake anymore. What is it? 
It's idolatry. That's the weight that Leviticus helps us see because we are, and I know I am, I love to give myself a break, right? At some point, I need a little leeway. Well, if God's specific about something, there is no leeway. And if we decide to do things our way, even when it comes to worship, then we are worshiping ourselves, which then is an idol. God is detailed about worship and how it unfolds. Now, I'm running out of time, so I better keep moving. Uh, The emphasis turns to blood, and we get a peek at its significance through all ages. So we'll have reading number three. Whoever has reading number three, I've gone way too fast. Look at that. Three, there we are. Ten through twelve. Now we're going to deal with how we deal with blood and see how emphatic God is about it. And I put here as the explanation one phrase from that. I will even set my face against that soul or that person that eateth blood. How serious is God about blood? He says he's going to cut him off again, which, by the way, that's the third time. I think there's five in chapter 17, maybe more. There's only 16 verses. But now he adds this extra emphatic, I will set my face against them. And here's why it is life. If you remember Genesis 9, 4 through 5, and it is redemption. Hebrews 9, 22. Where do you see that? You see that in verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. It's life. And I have given it unto you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. It is life. And it is redemption, and that's what Leviticus teaches us. And we see that principle spread from Genesis all the way into the New Testament about it being life and about it being redemptive. And we see that God views blood in a very serious way because who sheds his blood for us? Christ does. The Messiah. And this is what Goldberg notes. They had to recognize the death of the animal in light of their own deaths. In the Levitical system, then, there was the reminder that a blood atonement was God's appointed method of restoration. The blood applied in the proper places was the symbol of this new life. And so, again, it's not God being persnickety about the rules. It's God letting them know what has been important since the beginning or before the beginning of time. Because remember, God's plan didn't unfold as we stumbled along. God already knew what he was doing all the way through. And so everything we see is driving not to some other conclusion, but to the one conclusion God's always had as we move through. He's teaching Israel and us that the blood was necessary. It's not that God went and picked into the proverbial hat and said, okay, Jesus, what are you going to have to shed for this to work? I pick blood. Bummer, you didn't get to do. He didn't do that. It had to be blood. And so as we work all the way back through with God's knowledge, he's not trapped in time as we are, that you see this system is not just building, it's teaching, it's showing it. We know exactly why there has to be blood because that is what God demanded as a holy God. It could not be any other way. God required the blood because the blood was life and we're dead. We're condemned. And so the animal sacrifice pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of his son, Jesus, who shed his blood so we could have life. Done in a specific place, at a specific time, with specific blood. Done God's way in accordance with his law and his holiness, but done on our behalf. And so as we work through the detailed nature of the laws, we, being rebellious, tend to grate under it. And I use this every time I go into the Old Testament, I think, oh, man, could you imagine being an Israelite in the camp? How do you keep? I can't keep up and it's written right here. I just have to open it and look at it. How do they keep up with it? Because they valued God's law. Because it had weight in their lives. 
Why can we not do what God commands us to do as we get into the New Testament, as we work through all of Scripture? Because we don't give it enough priority. Is it possible? God says it is in Him. And so we're, we're driven to this. And I just put here as a thought question, do we appropriately weigh our Savior's blood? Because this idea of the importance of blood is a concept repeated through Leviticus so that we will comprehend and respond accordingly. So the blood remains significant, as I mentioned, even as the slaughter location changes in Deuteronomy. And that blood principle is going to come through now in Leviticus 17, 13 through 16. Whoever has that, if they don't mind reading it. And here we're going to deal with hunted animals and we're going to deal with animals that are found dead. And, and in Leviticus, they're able to eat them. In Deuteronomy, the Israelite is encouraged not to eat them or told not to eat them because it obviously led to uncleanliness that had to be cleansed from. But the, the hunted animal now and the emphasis stays on blood. Leviticus seventeen thirteen. Whatever man of the children of Israel or, the, or of the strangers who dwell among you who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. For it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what died naturally or what was torn by beast, whether he is a native of your own country or a stranger, he shall both wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his body, then he shall bear his guilt. I know I'm running out of time, so I'm going to talk faster than I normally do. Uh, here is an emphasis, and it's the emphasis again is on blood. When they hunted and killed game, they're instructed to drain the blood. Otherwise, they knew they would be cut off by God. Again, remember the weight that crushes down on them. If you ate something killed by another animal or that died on its own, you would eat it, but you needed to be cleansed and you were unclean until evening. And, and here's the way and some of the reasons why. One, if you go back, if you touched a dead animal back in the earlier laws, right, 11 through 15, you had to wash because you had touched a corpse. On top of that, as you consume that animal because you weren't there to drain its blood out of it, you didn't know how well it was done. God and his graciousness is allowing them to consume this animal but requiring of them a period of cleansing to use that animal you go to deuteronomy actually when they're settled in the land and there's more strangers with them israelites were forbidden from doing this and they let the stranger do it still being unclean to the evening but they're saying to the israelite you don't need to do this anymore in other words, there's enough provision, there's enough things taken care of. And you can recognize with a camp, if there's a lost domesticated animal, we want to take care of it. How many foreigners are going to be embedded with Israel at this point? A lot less than we're going to see when they're in the promised land. God's law, as he lays it out, and, and he's not changing it, but he's applying it differently as they're in a different circumstance. But here we are in Leviticus, and it's saying, if it dies naturally, you can eat it but you're unclean and you need to get cleansed and then recognize if you don't clean yourself, in other words, you, you diminish the priority of God's holiness and the blood, you bore your iniquity, which is again another way of saying God is going to punish you. Here's the application. This is the reality. It takes blood to make atonement and therefore God graciously shows its significance and expects his people to honor his instructions. The weight of the cross and the weight of the blood and the weight of these sacrifices. Why is it so important? Because that is how God redeemed us through the blood. And we need to never be casual about it. Being rebellious, we tend to question such restrictions, misunderstanding both our place and the mercy extended to us and knowing it to begin with. And this is where Wenham quotes, and I read it again. Throughout history, God's people have tended to forget that they owe exclusive allegiance to God. I said at the beginning, God makes no apologies for what he demands of us, nor does he need to. You watch a commentator on TV, they mock Christianity. They mock God. They mock us for a blind faith, for being dumb sheep, for whatever it is. You know what? 
I will gladly be your dumb sheep and follow the Almighty than worry about what you think of the Almighty because you are under his wrath and your talk is under punishment. I'm not going to be apologetic for it. We tend to be. I know how I am too, but at some point we need to stop and say, I serve the Almighty God. Oh, you're weird. You believe but you believe in miracles. You believe in being born again. I do. I do. I do. Make fun of me all you want. I do, because I'm going to believe the Almighty and what he says, and I'm going to take whatever shame you can dump out on me and just say, I believe in the Almighty. He's a miraculous God. He's a redeeming God. He makes very gracious and merciful demands on us. He demands our complete allegiance because that is our best. There's nothing better for you than to glory, glorify your Lord and Savior. That is the best thing for your life. And so God asks us and demands the best for us given to him. God graciously and mercifully showed Israel what was eternally significant. He was not wandering all over making up rules, but instead he was zeroing them in on what was important. As we read Leviticus and as we learn that lesson, we're pulled to what is important. And he showed us, took blood to make atonement for our sins because blood signifies the life. And so the life must be shed. As Wenham closed his section on this, he reminded us again of the Lord's Supper, which I talked about a little with the Day of Atonement. Each time the Lord's Supper is administered, the worshiper is reminded through Christ's words, this is what? My blood. That's why the Romans thought we were cannibals for a while, because we, we said it was God's Christ's blood. They thought we were drinking real blood and, and eating his body because they, they took it that literally. But, but Christ said, this is my blood that is only through his Savior's death, our Savior's death upon the cross, that we enjoy eternal life. So let's be sure we weigh correctly blood, specifically Christ shed blood, the exchange of life principle for us. And the Israelite understood that. Every component of their life emphasized that. And I put here, let's be sure we understand that it's God's mercy, grace, and right to be obeyed distinctively and to whom our allegiance must be given. God is not being persnickety when he demands our very detailed obedience. Instead, it's his mercy and it's great grace, and it's also his kingly right to demand that of his children. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and close in a word of prayer, and we'll be dismissed. If I thank for the opportunity we have to dive into your word, to dive into the book of Leviticus and understand uh, the weight of uh, blood and, and the need for blood for atonement. We know it in Hebrews that we're reminded of it. But here in Leviticus, we, we start uh, to gain an understanding of how deep that demand is and how important those details are. Uh, we become very casual and flexible, and we need to understand that our allegiance is owned exclusively to you. And so as we approach Scripture, instead of trying to explain away what you've required of us, we instead uh, should approach Scripture and see how detailed we should obey you and recognize that that is not a burden placed on us, but instead is actually your grace and mercy extended to us so that we can live for you and glorify you and worship you as you deserve to be worshipped. In your precious and holy name, amen.